Does a visit to Utopia sound good right about now? You know, you have the fruit off the trees, you have the fish in the sea, you have the water that comes from the sky. It's a more primeval life in a way. Coming up, author J. Martin Troost tells us how he found solace on some of the world's most remote islands when he followed the route that Robert Louis Stevenson took in the South Pacific a hundred years earlier. Harvard professor David Damrosch advocates for seeing the world through great literature. I also found that it was during the lockdown really therapeutic to really get out of the four walls and, and see the world from so many different angles. And Welsh historian Martin Delandovitz sheds light on what the folklore leaves out about the legendary King Arthur. He was a military leader. He was probably about five feet tall, rode a horse as big as a sheep, had body lice and a very nervous temperament. Come along for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Before you start dreaming of where you might travel next, David Damrush suggests you start a grand tour with a book. He's the head of Harvard University's Institute for World Literature. David joins us in a bit to recommend classic works that can take you deep into ancient Egypt, Persia, and even the Mayan Empire. And writers from today's up-and-coming societies can also help us better understand our own globalized era. Later in the hour, a Welsh expert on castles and archaeology digs into the dramatic history of his home country. Martin Delendovitz takes us into the legendary world of King Arthur, the battlegrounds of medieval lords, and the promises of the Industrial Revolution that you can find scattered across the Welsh countryside. Let's open up today's Travel with Rick Steves with another Martin from among our favorites in the show archives. Author J. Martin Troost was inspired by the writings of Robert Louis Stevenson of more than a century ago, the author of Treasure Island and the Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde left his native Scotland to find solitude and sobriety and to stir up his imagination in the dreamscapes of the tropical South Pacific. For similar reasons, Troost set off to retrace Stevenson's final South Sea voyage. It inspired him to write his own trilogy of memoirs. Martin, thanks for being with us. Oh, good to be here. So, Martin, you were basically following the route or inspired by the route of of Robert Louis Stevenson's final voyage to the South Seas. Now, tell us about his final voyage. Where did he go? Well, he started off in San Francisco. When he decided to leave, he stood about five foot ten, weighing all of 95 pounds. He decided to go to the South Pacific for his health and to write a few articles. The intention was just to go for six months. In the end, he uh, left and he uh, never set foot on a continent again, except for Australia. He sailed to uh, the Marquesas and then down to the Tuamotos, to Tahiti, and then he sailed upwards to Hawaii and caught a gypsy schooner down to Kiribati and finally to Samoa. And this was back in around 1890? That's right. And did he put on some weight? Uh, well, he did. He, <laughs> he, he did delight in the, uh, the health benefits of a, a long sea voyage. He was a sickly man, wasn't he? He was, which makes him sort of an extraordinary traveler, I find. That's interesting, yeah. Because, I mean, he, he was bold while he was frail. Absolutely. He sort of, uh, he, he traveled, I think, in spite of his health. Now, what, was this like a four or five year period during, in his life, his last five years or something? Approximately. It was the last five years of his life. So now, how did his adventures in the South Pacific inspire you as you wrote your trilogy and most recently Headhunters on my doorstep? Well, I'd been sort of coming off of a, a rough time myself. I was reading through the early literature of the South Pacific, reading through de Bougainville and, and, and Captain Cook and I found that much of their writings came across sort of as a technicolor dream. Robert Louis Stevenson, when he started writing about the early literature of the South Pacific, described it as sort of a sugar candy sham epic. 
And he almost as a taunt said, if you will read my work, you will know more about all the South Pacific than all the volumes combined. So uh, hmm. I, I took him up on his challenge, but I was more inspired by his life, the way he lived, sort of the uh, the living in the moment and, and seeing sort of the, the majesty of the world you know, and everything he encountered. So let's talk about that, because a uh, hundred years later, you've been inspired by Robert Louis Stevenson. He had his health problems. Uh, you were struggling with alcohol problems also. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're following his trail around the South Pacific. What did he do that you did that worked into your adventures and your writing? What he did, what you could really tell, is how much he was present in the moment. And that's sort of no small thing. You know, he um, he had much in his past. And, and, of course, there was the enormous pressure of being one of the uh, most renowned writers of his time. But what I really took from him is sort of the delight he took in life itself. You can see, if you take a look at the photographs from that era of his, sort of the, the twinkle in his eye. Yeah. It's a, it's a wonderful sight to see on such a sort of frail body. I was just in his museum in Edinburgh in Scotland, mm-hmm. and he is a fascinating traveler, and that really contributed to his ability to be a fascinating writer. Talk to me about some specific sort of things that we would enjoy seeing or actually doing. Pig hunting with a spear, uh, <laughs> chasing sharks, climbing coconut trees, dealing with headhunters. What are some of the, the vivid things that could a, a modern-day traveler could incorporate into their experience? Well, one of the the things that I really enjoyed is traveling to the Marquesas by ship. There is one boat that does take a few passengers that departs from Tahiti, and it takes you to islands that are uh, inaccessible by air, so only by sea. And you go to places like Fatuhiva, which is um, perhaps renowned from uh, uh, Thor Heyerdahl's days. Um, Mm -hmm. It was an island that he lived on for two years before World War II. And it's one of the most remarkable, most beautiful islands I've ever seen. How so? just breathtaking it's sort of a it's a strange fusion of islands you have sort of the the tropical air of it of course with the beaches and the palm trees down low but it's a moody island it's something that you 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 don't typically see in those latitudes and and the higher you look up the more almost fierce it looks and Mm. the the mood of the island seemed to sort of change and shift with the change of the light you know just with the passage Mm. of the sun I can imagine you could kind of feel the weather, the humidity, the before the storm and this kind of thing. Yeah, you do. You're, you're very much part of the elements there. And then further on towards the Tumotos, Robert Louis Stevenson was really taken by the, uh, the, the beauty of the lagoon in, in Fakarava. It's really sort of where the, the magic of those islands is. What did you do to spice up the... I mean, how did you connect with nature? What did you do that was edgy? Yeah, one of the things that I did, of course, is... Um, Fakarava is now a UN biosphere reserve, so there's no fishing uh, and the like around the uh, the reefs, which makes it sort of an extraordinary spectacle when you get in the water. I recall when I first arrived on the island and then toward sunset, the, the lagoon was calm, just absolutely still, and it just sort of fused seamlessly into the sky. And then all of a sudden I'd see these ripples, and very soon there were dorsal fins all around me, dozens, dozens of dorsal fins. Now, I grew up in the era of Jaws, so mm-hmm. this sort of uh, really gets into some sort of primal reptilian core of me, but really literally hundreds of sharks, and it's a, it's a breathtaking experience. You're snorkeling with sharks? Yeah, and your, your brain doesn't quite know what to do. It, it's trying to send you both sort of the adrenaline, you know, uh, yeah, panic know and flea impulse. Yeah. Right, and then, but on the other hand, you, you know that you're, you're seeing such a wonder of the world. Ugh. Yeah, it, it was a beautiful moment. 
and the light refracts through deeper into the surface, and then the way it sort of glistens off the fish or, or the coral and, and the swaying of the current, and then to see, it, it wasn't just the sharks, but these, these enormous emperor fish and, and schools, really, universities of fish swimming all around you. It was a, it was a great experience, and you know, knowing how much of the world's reefs are, are really damaged these days, I, I found it really an extraordinary experience to, uh, to partake of that. J. Martin Troost is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves in an interview we recorded when he released his book, Headhunters on My Doorstep, a true Treasure Island ghost story. He's also written The Sex Lives of Cannibals, Getting Stoned with Savages, and Lost on Planet China. We have links to his work in the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. I'm fascinated by just trying to get away from it all in the South Pacific and to be inspired not only by indigenous people there today, but also by a great traveler and writer and, and lover of life, Robert Louis Stevenson, a century ago. Did you pick up any sort of survival skills, Tom Hanks, castaway kind of stuff uh, in, in your travels that was helpful in, in your writing? You know, I'm I'm sure it's you're the same. You know, once once I get on an airplane and I start to go overseas, I just take up certain different habits, you know, with regards to food and, and, and water and, and basics like that. But in the South Pacific, you can still be fairly, you know, careless, I suppose. You know, you have the fruit off the trees, you have the fish in the sea, you have the water that comes from the sky. It's a more primeval life in a way. More primeval. That's a good word. I guess that's what I was imagining, is you can be yeah. primeval today. Mm-hmm. Now, now, you wrote that you felt like you had a kinship with Robert Louis Stevenson, like you were soulmates. Was he primeval? How were you soulmates? I, I think so. The way he lived his life, he was a born traveler. You know, he said he doesn't travel to go anywhere, but merely to travel. I love that quote, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's sort of the way I've been all my life as well. But what I find so curious about uh, Robert Louis Stevenson is at the end, his, his sort of decision to settle in Samoa out of all places. Why do you say out of all places? Well, Samoa really is at the end of the world. And as I said before, Robert Louis Stevenson was perhaps the most famous writer of his time. Yeah. But Robert Louis Stevenson, he was perhaps the only man who, who didn't recognize that he was himself famous. Huh. He felt much more comfortable in his bones, sort of being on a, on a ship in the pajamas, you know, striking through the South Seas than he did in a crowd in New York. Obviously, Robert Louis Stevenson's a great traveler and a great observer. Mm-hmm. Can he give us travel tips so that we can travel better today? I think he was perhaps a proponent of the full immersion experience. He was never sort of dabbling on the outside, you know, uh, gawking at the locals. He very much wanted to sort of partake of their life. And he, he had sort of a, an engagement with the world around him. I think sometimes when we, we, we travel lazily, we miss out on. So if, if an opportunity presents itself, the answer is yes. Yes. That's one of my themes lately. You know, I'm tired, yes. it's late. Opportunity, yes. Yes, exactly. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with J. Martin Troost, and he's written a trilogy of books on the South Pacific. His latest travel memoir is Headhunters on My Doorstep, inspired by the adventures of Robert Louis Stevenson 100 years ago in the same part of the world. You can read Robert Louis Stevenson's books and be inspired that way. What about your travel memoir, Headhunters on My Doorstep? Did you think about that as a guidebook? When you wrote that, did you hope that others might be inspired to say yes and do it with abandon? Well, perhaps. I, I think when I write, I, I tend to sort of uh, almost put up four walls, and, and I sort of write really sort of for my own enjoyment and uh, and just to hope that others will uh, will find what they're looking for and find some inspiration in them. 
but I, I don't consciously seek to uh, do that. Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful that the, the tale alone will uh, will inspire others to um, to take to the road or take to the seas, as it were. Well, let's close with one idea then. Let's say somebody was to read Headhunters on My Doorstep. What's one experience, one little adventure that they could translate into their own travel experience if they were lucky enough to venture through the South Pacific? I think to approach any of those islands by sea, I think that is just the way those islands are to be approached. And that can be done throughout. When we fly in, it's too abrupt. And I don't think we sort of appreciate sort of the reality, the nature of an island as we do when we slowly approach it by sea. I love it. I'm looking at the cover of your book, and that's exactly what shows up on the cover. Yeah, that's right. You're looking over yeah. the rustic bow pulpit, and here comes a little gaggle of, <laughs> of palm trees, and I just yeah. want to climb that coconut tree and drink some refreshing coconut milk. Right. J. Martin Troost, author of Headhunters on My Doorstep, thanks for uh, connecting us a little bit with Robert Louis Stevenson and, and sharing your travel adventures in your latest travel memoir. Happy travels. Well, thanks so much for uh, inviting me on. You bet. J. Martin Troost taught us how to correctly pronounce Kiribati and Vanuatu in another Travel with Rick Steves interview. You can listen to that at ricksteves.com slash radio. Up next, we'll explore the benefits of vicarious world travels with the head of the Comparative Literature Department at Harvard. And in a bit, it's a St. David's Day celebration of what's special about Wales in the UK. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Before heading out on a trip, David Damrosh likes to explore what great authors have written about the places he's visiting. During the months of pandemic lockdown, David's passion for literature from around the world turned into extensive armchair travels. As chair of the Department of Comparative Literature at Harvard University, David put together a list of 80 works that he recommends, contemporary and classic writers who are the best at making foreign worlds come alive for us. He's written a kind of guide, and it's called Around the World in 80 Books. David joins us from his home studio in Brooklyn, New York. David, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much. My pleasure. So this really is a pretty easy and enjoyable way to enhance our travel experience just by enjoying some great literature beforehand. Absolutely. I really feel that literature is a privileged mode of connection to the world. Never quite direct, because every writer is refracting the world more than they're just reflecting what's around them. You know, and every writer invents a different version of their home. One of the things that's been fun for me really thinking about is how differently the very same uh, moment different writers will view the world around them. And, you know, I like to kind of cut them some slack and not worry about if it's perfectly accurate, if it just gives me a reasonable understanding of what it was like 500 years ago, you know, what it was like in the Middle Ages. What was it like in in the Holocaust? What was it like uh, with Roman emperors? I mean... If we can have literature take us back there, I, I really believe in this notion that the more you bring to your sightseeing, the more you can get out of it. And and literature has helped me, and I'm not even that well-read. Well, absolutely. I feel this very strong. I've, I worked a good deal in the ancient Near East, and as much as I love Egyptian uh, art and architecture, which I originally fell in love with that from the Metropolitan Museum as a teenager, the literature tells you what they're thinking in a way that you just can't tell just from the monuments. And, and do you have kind of a a litmus test or something for what you're going to let get into your brain if it's not honest-to-goodness history. I mean, you know, you read something that's a romanticized history, and you assume this guy's a serious writer, he's he's taking lots of liberties, but, you know, if I read The, the Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, I'm getting a good sense of what it was like when the church controlled all the knowledge. 
Well, I think what's so fascinating about many layered work like that, I mean, any really great work of literature has has multiple modes of access, multiple doors in, and multiple levels. So with Echo, uh, it's so interesting because he was a medievalist who really knows the medieval world, but also he's processing his own experience in Italian politics going up in the 60s, uh, retrojecting it back to the to this monastery. Wow. I didn't realize. <laughs> I have to read it again with that in mind. But that's what's so interesting about historical novels. They're always about the present, even when they pretend to be about something a thousand years ago. So what's an example of that? Uh, other than uh, other than Echo? Uh, one of my authors is uh, Margaret Yourcenar, fantastic French writer, Memoirs of Hadrian. And she's retelling uh, sort of the life of the Roman Empire uh, through Emperor Hadrian, writing a, a memoir to his successor, uh, Marcus Aurelius. So it's totally grounded in her deep knowledge of Latin culture, but it's also her response to World War II. Huh. And she's totally, that's unspoken. It's just a, a parallel lesson that if you read between the lines, you can pick up. I think a careful reading will show it. And she does us a favor because she has a kind of an afterword in which she says that. She says, before the war, when she started ah. the book, she thought of him as this great poet and esthete. During the war, she realized he was holding together this world that was falling apart. And it was the war that brought her to that dimension of his life. So maybe a lesson there is read the afterward right after you read the forward. <laughs> Absolutely. I, for me, I'm a rank beginner. I'm steep on the learning curve. I have no idea what it was like before there was a printing press. I have no idea what it was like when they thought the earth was the center of the universe. And I want to get into that mindset. And I'm so thankful when a book can help me do that. And I'm also thankful when a book can help me better understand contemporary issues. I mean, when I think about traveling, right now, Immigrant cultures is, is a big deal all over the world. The, the challenge of mass movements of people because of climate change or, or, or political uh, stress and so on. Can you give me a couple of examples in your vicarious travels and in, in your reading where you've really found a book that gives you a valuable understanding of something that's really important in our lifetimes, in, in our travels. Yeah, absolutely. Very much this, this book, as it developed uh, as a blog originally in the summer 2020, was very much kind of um, reflecting what was going on in the world around, including the migration crisis that had been simmering for several years. So, for example, Marjan Satrapi's wonderful uh, graphic memoir, Persepolis, is very much about her experience as a kid being sent to Europe to sort of shelter her from the aftermath of the Iranian Revolution. And she falls apart in Europe and become, becomes suicidal, addicted to drugs, finally makes it back home to, to Iran, and she feels like caught in between these two worlds. It's a beautiful and very moving account. On the other hand, at the same time, the chapter before, I talk about the Hebrew Bible as a migrant narrative. So you, you have the deep roots of the migration crisis, what's happening to the, to the Israelites after their nation is destroyed. You know, when you when you look at ancient, well, like when you think about the whole Bible, it's all in a political scenario of living under the Roman Empire. Multiple empires, multiple. The road. And before that, it's the Assyrian Empire and the Persian Empire and the Babylonian Empire. You can't throw a brick without hitting another empire that's invading them. And a good book can, can shine a light on that. Absolutely. We're talking with literary historian David Damrosh, and he founded Harvard University's Institute for World Literature. He's with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to recommend some of the greatest writing about many places that he profiles in his book. His book is called Around the World in 80 Books. It's his compilation of 80 exceptional books, classics and contemporary, from authors who shape our idea of the world through literature. David, I find that the last century is, is something that in our travels we, we tend to 
neglect. We go to the we go to the museums, we go to the cathedrals, we go to the castles, and we think about distant history. But this has been quite a tumultuous 20th century. What's an example of a book that you've read that really opened your eyes to the drama of the 20th century in a way that you're really thankful for? I have a set of uh, books centered in the Congo and Nigeria. Uh, Chino Achebe's Things Fall Apart, which is the most successful African novel ever written. I think 20 million copies sold. Uh, and it's very much about the, the, the advent of colonialism and how, how it affects the world. That together, I followed that with Wole Shoenka, Nobel Prize winner, uh, Death and the King's Horseman, a fantastic drama, which is really about the, the collapse of the imperial project written in early independence. So those two works already give you a kind of stereoscopic view of so many of the tensions. They're religious, they're political, they're between genders, both of them very much about men versus women, uh, Africa versus Europe. And to have a book that's written by an African in Africa rather than by some caring person from Europe or the United States, that gives it altogether, a lot more Altogether difference. I do start that chapter with Joseph Conrad, Heart of Darkness, which kind of opens up Africa for a lot of Western readers. And then Achebe is kind of writing against, back against it. So it's very interesting to see how he's responding. You know, I was just uh, a couple years ago, I was in Ethiopia at the African Union uh, headquarters talking with people who care about this. And they were lamenting how relatively little is published in sub-Saharan Africa and how that's an initiative right now in African, among African nations together as they work together is to stoke their publishing industry and, and realize that's part of the what weaves the fabric of that culture is to have local voices telling local stories so local people know from where they came. Absolutely. Uh, one of my authors, Chimamanda Adichie, fantastic Nigerian-American writer, uh, has a TED Talk called The Danger of a Single Story, which has been viewed 24 million times. And she says, growing up as a kid in Lagos, all she read was British children's books. And she started writing stories with people who ate apples and played in the snow. She had never seen snow. They ate mangoes. Then she discovers a couple of African novels, and it totally changes her view of the possibilities of storytelling. Oh, Yeah. And also, if you get to read something from an African perspective, Lagos in particular, I think, you can gain a more intimate appreciation of what I think they call the curse of natural resources. That's right. Just corporate greed and how it has just raped the countryside and the culture. Also, they can export wealth from a society that is really down and struggling. Yes, and she has an earlier uh, a novel called Half a Yellow Sun, which is about the Biafran conflict and very much about those sorts of issues. Also, I think that publication is a matter for us readers as well. I mean, to have to seek out these things. Things get published and then ignored if we don't look for them. So part of this book, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a preacher's kid. I'm very evangelical about this. I want people to read these great books. <laughs> this, is, this is clear. When I, when I look through your book, it just inspires me to get on the ball and to realize it's a real investment in your trip if you can get a little context uh, through great literature before you travel there. David Damrosh chairs the Comparative Literature Department at Harvard University, and he's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. David's latest work is a literary journey around the world in which he recommends traveling with his favorite authors to different places and times in our imagination. We have links to David's work and the Institute for World Literature in the notes for this week's show. That's at ricksteves.com radio. So, David, in all of your reading, and you have just done a lot of reading during the pandemic, I, it sounds like you didn't let the pandemic keep you down. You let uh, literature keep you traveling. What's a, what's a favorite destination that, that you can be thankful for because you read a book? Oh, there are quite a few. And I do often try to seek out something really fun to read when I'm going someplace new. Uh, 
not, not all of which could make into the book because I only had room for like 16 chapters, 16 cities or, or areas. But um, well, even going to, to Venice, uh, Donna Leon, I hadn't read before, her Venetian uh, mystery stories are so cool. And they give you such a feel for daily life in, in Venice. Do you appreciate fiction or nonfiction or a mix in this regard? I will certainly read both uh, travelers' accounts. I'm very interested in travel accounts of places going back to the 18th and 19th century are really quite fascinating. And you can counterpoint those against the experiences you find now. But I, I, I'm in love with literature and I will often look for poetry. A great moment for me was uh, visiting Shiraz in Iran. And my host uh, took my wife and me there with his daughter-in-law, who is a physician. We went to the, the tomb of Hafez, the great uh, mm. medieval poet. And the daughter-in-law, this physician, starts reciting Hafez poetry from, from memory. I thought, uh, this is a living culture. You know, I was at that same tomb, David, and I was so inspired by the just the love that Persians, that Iranians had for the poetry. And they would go to the poet's tomb, and they would read it, and they would go with their loved ones, and they would all know it very well. I just thought, I wish I could, I wish I could get into it like that. Yeah. How, how can, how do we get into that? Because I tried and it, what, what, what's your trick for that? Because to me, it's more than a different language. It's a different sensibility. Well, yeah, so you glimpse it. You glimpse it in some ways at a distance and partly you have to respect that difference. A, a really good translation, uh, Dick Davis has, has a Penguin uh, mm -hmm. book called Faces of Love that has a lot uh, of Hafez, and the, the translations are beautiful. Now, we know we're not experiencing the same thing, uh, but that's also true if we're reading any foreign work or any work from distant time. Uh, if uh, we're reading Dante today, even in Italian, it's not the same thing as Boccaccio reading him uh, a century after Dante's life. We now read uh, the Divine Comedy uh, in the world in which Derek Walcott is rewriting him and uh, Primo Levi is reciting him in Auschwitz. So we gain something different, uh, even if we get a glimpse of that original sensibility, uh, of which there are still echoes, as you and I both found it in Shiraz. Oh, yeah. And it was just, to me, it was something, a, a whole new frontier that you have to respect because it is so fundamental to the uh, way that local people approach love and great beauty and, and their culture and so on. That's right. Well, Hafez says there must be something behind the veil, and that's what his poetry is going to pierce, the veil of worldly illusion for us. You know, for me, the great thing about literature, it gives you a vivid sense of place. I, I love that notion of, oh, I was just lost in my book. What, what is it for you that, that gives a sense of place, uh, that sort of vividness? That's is really so interesting. There can be different strategies by different writers uh, are very different. It can be a gorgeous description. It can be just a mood or a kind of feel. And in some ways, I think that's what poetry gives us, that, that feeling of Hafez uh, or the, the mixture of poetry and prose that you may get uh, in uh, Murasaki Shkibu, Tale of Genji, or in Basho's uh, Journey to the Deep North. You know, it's, it's a feel of a world that is both prosaic and poetic at the same time, which is a challenge to us in our very often prosaic modern world. That is, a, that is a, a disadvantage that we have with our kind of appetite for, for writing. Is I don't think we're patient enough to, to slow down and enjoy a lot of literature that was written from generations past. I think that's right. To me, um, I have a cousin, Barbara Damrush, who's involved with the slow food movement. And I think that right. reading great literature is like slow reading as opposed to fast oh. food reading. 
Uh, so, and that's true. That's true of a poem that you should memorize or just live with. But also, say a long work like Proust, you can't just you know binge read it. You're going to have to live with it. Uh, and as a teacher, I feel increasingly less is more. So, if you read three pages of Proust and really just live with it for a while, you learn everything he has to tell you. I, one of my favorite moments is just sitting on a ruined castle above the town of Assisi, ah. reading a great book about St. Francis and being immersed in the same nature that Francis was centuries ago, listening to the same bird song that he listened to. And it became a, an ensemble of sort of sensory experiences as I was actually reading about St. Francis. Yeah. I felt that very strongly uh, in, in Mexico, going to Palenque. Uh, you can read the Popol Vuh, the great Mayan creation epic, but if you go to some of these temple sites, you're really there in a, in a whole different way. Wow. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with David Damrosh, and David has written a book called Around the World in 80 Books, inspiring us. It, it, I get a feeling, David, that it's a, I don't know if crusade is the right word, but it's an, a, a mission that you have to remind people there's great literature out there and... Uh, it can enhance our travels powerfully. Yes, I am a, the son of uh, Anglican missionaries, so the mission is an appropriate word they met in the, in the Philippines. Uh, and I kind of grew up hearing about this other side of the world. And I think that's originally when I was in Bar Harbor, Maine, and as a kid, I'd like to pretend I was in the mountain province in the Philippines. And, and I think that started me off on this. I also found that it was during the lockdown really therapeutic to really get out of the four walls and, and see the world from so many different angles. And a bunch of my readers of blogs said the same thing. I like how you, you uh, wrote how uh, books can stoke a child's wanderlust. In fact, your first movie, something like at the age of three or four, was Around the World in 80 Days. Can we just wrap things up with a, a moment uh, today where reading at home gave you a, a particularly vivid travel experience that you're thankful for? What was that experience? Well, to take one example, uh, the first time I encountered Aztec poetry in a translation of a translation, it was English translation of a Spanish translation of the Nahuatl, which inspired me to study Nahuatl. I'll just give you a verse uh, to close with from one of these poems that just never left me. From the, This is from the 1580s. So has it been said by Tochi Huitzin. So has it been said by Koyochuki. We come here only to sleep. We come here only to dream. It is not true. It is not true that we come to live on earth. Have we arrived? Have we sprung up on earth in vain? Shall I perish like the flowers? Will my time, will my fame eventually fade away? Will my renown be nothing on earth? At least flowers, at least songs. Mm. It's so easy to underestimate the, the thoughtfulness and the warmth and the, and the intellect of people from centuries ago. There is an example, isn't it, of somebody who we can be inspired by. David Damrosh, thanks so much, and best wishes with your reading, your teaching, and your travels. Thanks so much. David Damrosh is director of the Institute for World Literature at Harvard. Their website includes lectures and Zoom seminars with prominent international authors. You'll find a link with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Have you ever tried to capture your travel impressions in a haiku poem? Send us yours from the link at ricksteves.com slash radio, and we might read it on the air one day, like these listeners did. A mission trip to Havana, Cuba, inspired Sue Tomlin of Mount Vernon, Illinois, to send us this haiku. Pulpy sweet sunshine, heaven sliced into a bowl, fresh mangoes in spring. Shane Mapes from Blackhawk, Colorado, would like to go back to New Orleans. Second Lines Parade, Kaleidoscope of Color, Street pulses with life. 
while Pamela Burton from Coral Springs, Florida, is dreaming of springtime in Paris. I sometimes wonder if the flowers in Paris bloom early in May. With your limited vacation time, if you're going to Britain, the big question for many is, should you take time to visit the little country of Wales? Well, Welsh guide Martin Delandovitz would say yes, and he has some compelling reasons why Wales is well worth a stop in your itinerary. And Martin joins us right now in our studio to share those thoughts. Martin, thanks a lot for being here. Hello and thank you. Now, Martin, I introduced Wales as a little country. You're part of the United Kingdom. Is Wales a country? Wales is a country, and uh, it's small. Mm-hmm. If you stretch a tape, it's 170 miles long. And it's at least, I want to point this out to you, 60 miles wide. 170 from north to south, yeah. 60 miles from Ulfa's Dyke to the coast. It's really, you, if you stretch the tape at the widest, it's about 130 wide. Ooh, but wow. that's right down at the bottom in the south there. And how big's the population ballpark? Three million. Three million Welsh people. And getting there from London? I would say by train, depending on which part of Wales, somewhere between two and a half and four hours. So you're you know, three or four hours from uh, Wales, from London. That's actually yes. quite accessible. Very accessible. You're very close to Bath and the Cotswolds. And when you're when you're When you're touring Liverpool or or Chester, or the Cotswolds, remember, the next step over is Wales. Now, if you're deciding what you want to see in Wales, a lot of people think, well, i got to go to the north or the south. They don't have a lot of time. How would you help people decide which is which? I know you're from the north, so you might yes. be biased that way, but uh, give, the, give the south a, a fair shake here and then compare it to the north. Right. If you're going to South Wales, the capital of Wales is in the southeast. That's Cardiff. And Cardiff, for those who haven't been there, it's, it's a well-kept secret. I was talking to a traveller from the United States, and he was bowled over by Cardiff. He thought it was lovely. And then the whole of the South Wales coast is just lovely castles. I mean, Tintern Abbey, everybody's heard of Tintern Abbey. How about Chepstow Castle, the oldest stone-built castle in Britain? Wow. I know. How about Pembroke Castle, the birthplace of Henry Tudor, who was to become Henry the Seventh King of England? Also, we think of uh, mining up in the north, but there are, are mines to see in the south also. Yeah, there's the, a thing called the Big uh, Big Pit. Yeah, the Big Pit. Yeah. You see, the south was coal, iron, and steel. The north was slate. And Cardiff was uh, it was a very big player in the industrial age. For, it was uh, as a port. It used to vie and beat sometimes New York on tonnages. Uh-huh. The difference being New York's cargoes were many and varied, whereas Cardiff's cargo was coal. Just coal. Coal. So it was the coal capital of the world. It was. We if, drove the navies of the world. If you want to really pump anything into the atmosphere, you can really go to Cardiff and be in high gear. A long, long time ago, when it was relatively small. A long time ago, yeah. But if you go to 1900, there are 115 coal mines in the Ronda Valley. Gosh, for the last 40 years, there are none. None. They're just museums now, really. Yeah, they are. You know, I I was walking through a museum in in Britain, and uh, coal really was a thing of the past that way. I mean, it used to be the the engine of the Industrial Revolution. It was the primary employer in a lot of regions, in Wales and in, in England. And now it's in the museums. It is. It's interesting to think that Wales, purely by its natural resources and, of course, the work power, became the hub of the Industrial Revolution. And you think that Britain led the Industrial Revolution. I'm afraid they did. Mm -hmm. And so not only did we get the benefits of that, yes, Welsh steam coal did drive the navies of the world. But, of course, nowadays when we think more of environmental consequences of extractive industries, Wales also suffered all the, um, let's say, disadvantages of industrialization, yes. What would those have been? 
well, terrible disaster for an awful example. In 1966, coal, of course, has oil in it. Coal waste tip just slid down onto the town of Abiravan and went in and basically buried a school and oh, yes. killed a generation of children. And that was featured on an episode in The Crown, uh, and it was really a very emotional it is scene. A, it's a tragic thing. And uh, the coal industry was such that people didn't get paid a lot for working there. So you had a, a poor working class in Wales that really shaped the sort of culture that we have in, in Wales to this day, that heritage. It did. It also shaped the demography of Wales in that it was industry that drew people together and therefore you got industrialization and urbanization, people moving into towns. Mm -hmm. Towns appeared for the first time Mm. because before the Industrial Revolution, Wales was a relatively small and scattered population. The increase in the population... Well, getting back to your uh, travel friend there, Cardiff is an amazing city to see. It's the, it's one of the most surprising cities, and it's worth checking out. Just very near Cardiff is St. Fagan's Open Air Folk Museum, and this takes all the traditional aspects of Welsh culture, collects it there for the, the national heritage, and anybody can visit that. It's a remarkable museum if you want to see traditional lifestyles in, in, last, you know, in the 1800s and early 1900s. We've got an amazing castle, Carefilly Castle. Carefilly. Carefilly was uh, renovated a bit, but I'd put in a huge mega plug for Chepstow. If you're a real Chepstow. castle, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Chepstow. And it's a nice town also. You can Chepstow's enjoy the town, town and just walk down and yeah. see the castle. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Wales with Martin Delandovitz. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Lena is on the line from Kirkland in Washington State. Lena, thanks for your call. Thank you. Hello. Hey, have you been to Wales? I did. I had an absolute adventure there. I drove from um, Cardiff up north to the west and down basically in a circle for a week around the entire Mm. country. And it was an absolute dream trip. And um, I, I learned quite a bit and I can't tell you how lovely it was. And I do plan to go back, actually. So, uh, so, Lena, you drove for a week around Wales. Tell us the top three or four places that you stopped, or the most uh, um, the most enjoyable. I, I, okay, so food. Cardiff has fantastic food and drink. Culturally, and to see historic sites, obviously the North uh, really enjoyed Conway, and obviously, um, pardon me if I butcher the names, but Carnarvon. Carnarvon, um, yeah. I did. Well said. E- each of those towns has a, a just a, a staggeringly powerful old medieval castle, and as a, a sort of a garrison town in a wall built at the foot of the castle. They do. Um, it just it was completely amazing. Then on the way down, uh, definitely the Snowdonia National Park, I did get a chance to climb the mountain. Did you actually uh, climb it, it yourself, absolutely. or did you take the train? I did. It's not very big, so it it really was doable on foot and spectacular, absolutely nice. spectacular. The gardens, Bodnant. Bodnant, yeah, lovely, isn't well, thank it? Thank you. Well done. Tell, uh, describe those gardens, because yeah. I'm, I'm not even that into gardens, and I was just enchanted by those gardens. It's like being inside a fairy tale. I mean, oh. I really just don't have the words. There is, huh. It is so spectacularly green, and it's like, Trellises I don't know, it's like that uh, Rivendale in Lord of the Rings. It's the closest thing I can describe it. Martin, it's really uh, that pretty. Briefly, Martin, what is Boughton and Gardens? How Boughton, can it be so beautiful? Uh, Boughton and Gardens is in the Conway Valley, so it's it's very near the coast, and it's just a private garden, the Potchin right. family 
most, not that old, 1900s, but it's famous for its rhododendrons, yeah. azaleas and camellias. Yeah. And, and handkerchief trees. But I, I've I, never seen one before. I know. And I, I'm along with Rick. I'm not a garden f- fan per se, but I love botnet. And then you circled yeah. back down to Carnarvon. Uh, give us one more stop that you enjoyed. There were show caves, national show caves. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, uh, yeah. yeah, so there's like three or four um, show caves that you could go inside. And there's one that they call a cathedral that has these amazing salt formations hanging from the roof of it. It, it was just a, a spectacular place and also a fun place if you're with kids. But uh, I don't have kids, and I enjoyed it. <laughs> okay. Lena, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Bye, Lena. Take care. Bye-bye. And Laura's on the line from Cudahy in Wisconsin. Laura, when were you in Wales last? And uh, what, what my do you husband and I were there in 2017. Uh-huh. And we spent 12 days there, and we did all of our travel by bus and by train. Ah, Bus and train. Now, mm-hmm. it was a sparse population. Did you manage well by bus or train? We did. We like to travel by public transportation mm-hmm. on just about every trip we've taken. And one of my favorite memories was we were um, leaving Harlech, and we were at the train station, and there was a harpist who was playing on the platform there. And so you you heard this beautiful music, and there's gorgeous golden harp and you saw Harlot Castle in the background and it was oh. just it was just amazing and I just felt like we had so many moments of serendipity like that on this oh. trip. Oh, and Harlech is one of the most dramatic, visually dramatic castles. Harlech is amazing. H-A-R-L-E-C-H. And I've got a memory, Martin, when I was walking up to Harlech, there was a man stationed there playing his harp. Yeah, he hangs around there. And he's yeah. just there in the most scenic picture postcard spot and it's just it's, it's, it's very good and he's, yeah. he plays a Celtic harp not right. one of these great Italian baroque harps right. and it's beautiful music and your pronunciation by the way of Harlech was wonderful and Laura knows how to speak Welsh that's good well Laura the, the harpist was just sort of an example of the the Welsh love of music and its rich heritage and you're surrounded by all that uh, the beautiful sights I mean it's just, it just seems made to order for a traveler oh it, it, it was and we wish we could have stayed even longer. It was just an amazing trip going from from small town to small town in the north. Yeah. Hey, Laura, thank you so much for your call. You're welcome. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Wales with our favorite Welsh guide, Martin Delandovitz. So, Martin, that was pretty impressive that Laura was traveling around by public transit because most people rent a car. Yeah, I mean... Buses don't come every five minutes, nor do trains. But if you arm yourself with a timetable for both mm-hmm. buses and trains, it's so doable. So don't be frightened of driving on the wrong side of the road. You, you get others to do it for you. <laughs> That's good. Let's talk about the north. Uh, what are the, the highlights of the north if you're wondering where you should spend your precious vacation time when you're going to Wales? Well, there's the Snowdonia National Park with the great Mount Snowdon there in the middle of it. And it's the highest mountain in Wales, higher than anything in England for that matter. And around there, the coastline is beautiful. If you take the National Park, just the Snowdonia National Park, it's not big, 827 square miles, but it's got something for everybody from Conry in the north to Machuntleth in the south and from Llanelhaeren in the west over to Bala in the east. Bala's the largest natural lake in Wales. Hmm. Snowdon's the highest peak. You have unique species. You have the Snowdon lily, you have the Snowdon beetle, 
And also you've got these amazing castles. You mentioned Absolutely. Conway. The Carnarvon is famous uh, yeah. for the uh, Prince of Wales. In fact, I met you. You used to be a guide at the castle of Carnarvon. That's where you had the misfortune to meet me. And my life has never been the same. Never been the same. When we look at these castles, we have to remember these amazing castles were the, the state of the art in their day in the 13th century. And these were not Welsh castles. No, Edward I conquered Gwynedd. Wales was a series of separate small principalities, like kingdoms, only with a prince at the head. And Edward I was a very, very powerful So this king. is how the King of England, really, from London... Uh, kept the people of Wales down as, as England yes, consolidated indeed. their rule. But, you know, if people say he conquered Wales. No, 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 no. He conquered Gwynedd. Look where he built his castles, only in the north. That's where he conquered. Oh, that's true, isn't it? Because yeah. you think of these great castles uh, of Edward of Edward I, uh, I like what you call it the fist of iron. These There's five castles that are just like, how could anybody in those days ever stand up against that? And the Welsh did. The Welsh were pretty feisty for oh, yeah. indigenous I mean, people. Carnarvon, the most expensive castle ever built by a king of England, was overrun by the Welsh of Gwynedd in 1294. So no mean feat. No, really. So you've got great national park. You've got the mountain, Snowdon. You've got uh, big castles. You've got uh, the slate industry. You can tour mm-hmm. slate mines and go into the slate. You know, there's also sort of the Blackpool or the Brighton or the Coney Island of, of Wales up in the north. What is the town? Rhyl. And I don't know, I'm thinking of, uh, is it London? Oh, Llandudno, Llan- no, yeah. no, it's not Coney Island. You see, Rhyl used to be the fanfares, the, the buzzing bells and the mm-hmm. whatever. But Llandudno was always a genteel resort. Okay. It has none of the gaming arcades or slot machines, and it maintained and has always maintained its sort of genteel end. So this is Llandudno. Llandudno. Okay. How do we spell that? Double L-A-N-D-U-D-N-O. Llandudno. Llandudno. And so that's the elegant sort of resort destination in Victorian times. And then where's the tacky Coney Island? What's Hrill. that? Hrill. How do you spell that? R-H-Y-L. All right, so two different ones, both on the north coast of Wales? Yes. Okay, now, Llandidno, I was charmed by that. It's, it's a it's, beautiful place. It is lovely. I mean, this, the coast, the bay is lovely, and it has maintained its quality. It refuses to compromise that. Very popular with British tourists. And, Martin, when we're talking about Wales, it's distinct from England because it's Celtic. Like yes. Ireland and, and like Scotland. Yes. How, how did that happen? England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, some is Celtic, some is not. Yeah, what, what happens is it's climate change, a very topical thing. Climate change forces migration. And from the area, let's say Austria, Switzerland, people move in all directions, but some end up in Britain. And You're then, talking a long, long time ago. I'm talking they would arrive on the south coast of Britain at about 1,000 BC and then move northwards. Driven by climate change? Driven by climate change, yes. Oh, okay. Increasing rainfall, uh, lowering in temperatures. So just out of desperation, they migrated away from their historic homelands, crossed the English Channel, which wasn't called the English Channel then, no. and pushed the indigenous people they found? Yes, they did. I mean, they settled. I mean, the amount of pushing and conflict is debatable. But then, of course, came the Romans. And when the Romans left, here come the Anglo-Saxons, English, and they sweep across England. Arthur, Arthur, a king. He wasn't a king. He was a military leader. He was probably about 
five feet tall, rode a horse as big as a sheep, had body lice and a very nervous temperament. But <laughs> say, Sean, that, say that again, he rode a horse as big as a sheep? Big as a large sheep, probably. <laughs> but Sean Connery sells films better. Oh, yeah. Anyway, he was ultimately, you have to say, a failure because the Anglo-Saxons took what they wanted, but they came to the rugged wastes of Wales and said, oh, we don't want that. So bottom line, the, the uh, second-rate terrain was left to the Celtic people. That's right, Scotland. And, and to it, this day, um, it's been a struggle economically, uh, and now things are getting together in the modern age, but you've got Celtic people taking the fringes of the British Isles. Yes, if you like, yeah. And in Wales, the Celtic um, culture is strong and proud to this day. It's the strongest. It's stronger than that of Ireland or, or indeed that of Scotland. It is where I live, out in the far west. It's the further you get from England, the more Welsh culture becomes. So you, if you come to my town, Carnarvon, you have well over 95% of the people use Welsh every day, all day in the streets. Is that right? Yeah, and school is taught in Welsh, so that if you want to learn physics, it's in Welsh. If you learn Welsh, it's in Welsh. If you learn English, it's in Welsh. I first met Martin Delandovitz years ago at his home base in Carnarvon, where the locals have taken to calling him Mr. Castle, thanks to the stories he shares of the town's famous landmark. Martin co-founded Historic Tours Wales back in 1982 to offer local guiding services. Their website is historictourswales.com. And Martin, if a traveler wants to, let's just finish off this uh, little discussion of Wales with, if a traveler wants to feel the, the charm and, and, and the, just the glow of the Welsh culture in one experience that is accessible to a traveler, what would you do? I would have to say the, the male voice choir is archetypal. You don't have to climb that far to stand in the hills of Wales and get that feeling. Listening to a choir, you can visit the museum. St. Fagans, you mentioned it, Rick. Wonderful museum to visit. It is. There is so much. But for my money, it's the natural beauty. The rugged coast, the deep valleys. It's a truly beautiful country. And it's a very well-kept secret, if you think about it. Everybody knows about Scotland. They've got a picture in their head of a man right. in a kilt. Yeah. England, they've got Rose Brief, John Bull, William Shakespeare. Very few people have a m- mental picture of Wales. Sometimes it's a coal miner with a hat and right. a lamp. But that's all past. OK, well, paint me the the picture that we're going to get lost in the pristine grandeur of nature in Wales. Very deep valleys. Uh, in the north where I come from, deep valleys, heavily glaciated, so they're deep. They're Black steep. rock and green, green... Very nature. green grass, beautiful yeah. lakes. And then beautiful rivers. Oh, really? And unspoiled, that's the thing, unspoiled. Snowdon and the towns of the north, they're big attractions, but if you just... Step back a little. You're on your own. So and take a hike. Take a walk in Take Wales. a walk in Wales. Martin, thanks so much for Thank you us. for having me, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmura Hall, and Donna Bardsley. We get promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, website support from Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to National Public Radio in Washington for their help. Gretchen Strauch read our listener travel haiku. Find out when other stations around the country are travel with Rick Steves. There's a list at ricksteves.com radio. Enjoy Europe on a Rick Steves bus tour. Our bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. 
with small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and dozens of exciting itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com.